What if I were to tell you that I, I really never, never wanted to be six feet, six inches tall like I used to be before I started shrinking, but that I really just wanted to be, you know, more average height, but I wanted extremely long arms. That's what I really wanted. I wanted to be a policeman like Freeman and be the long arm of the law, literally. <laughs> That wouldn't make a lot of sense, would it? <laughs> wouldn't make a lot of sense. In other words, what, what man would want to grow physically so that his body was asymmetrical rather than symmetrical? Well, why then would a man strive to grow in, say, um, only two of the Christian graces, as we call them in, in 2 Peter chapter 1? where we are tonight in our study in Second Peter. What if we just simply wanted to, to grow in self-control? And maybe we'll add uh, perseverance to it, but all the others I'm really not concerned about. Well, that really cannot be the case if we're going to be pleasing to God because each of these Christian graces in this section of Second Peter are, are in separable. They're intricately tied to each other, and one grows out of another, starting with faith, the foundation upon which all of these are to be added, these other Christian graces. And we are to strive to have them all. The late Thomas B. Warren, concerning the idea of an asymmetrical body or the idea of uh, of a spiritual uh, asymmetrical body, said this, the knowledgeable man who woefully lacks love is a sort of spiritual monstrosity. So we could have all these graces, but love we're not concerned about, and we would be indeed a, a spiritual monstrosity. We are to grow in all of the graces. And we begin tonight with 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, where the Apostle Peter, having reminded his readers, us included, of course, that indeed we have precious promises that enable us to become partakers of the divine nature, back at verse 4, having escaped the corruption that is in the world, through lust. Now, verse 5, but also for this very reason. What very reason? Because of these precious promises, these exceedingly great and precious promises, now you need to add the Christian graces and make sure that you abound in these Christian graces so that you do not squander the wonderful promises that you have embraced and the partaker of the divine nature that you have become. And to make sure that you remain an escapee, if you will, from the world and that you are not recaptured by Satan. In other words, what we are studying here shows us the absolute essentiality of growth in Christianity in our Christian lives. And we have already said that this epistle of Second Peter has been called 
the epistle of growth. The last verse in this epistle, 2 Peter 3.18, says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The epistle of growth, and the key word, as we have already noted, is knowledge, showing that growth is intricately tied, inseparably tied to knowledge. And without knowledge, there can be no growth. And knowledge is one of these great Christian graces here, but it is not it is not the only one, but it is certainly a key to our growth. And so Peter admonishes those of us who have partaken of the great, exceedingly great and precious promises through the gospel, having obeyed the gospel and have become partakers of the divine nature and we have escaped the corruption that's in the world, make sure that you remain an escapee. And the only way to do that is to apply yourself to the addition of these Christian graces. The first of which is faith to which we're to add these others. And that clearly shows when he says add to your faith that faith is the foundational principle. We've said that before, we've studied that before, we've noted that before and rightfully so. Faith is the foundation upon which everything is Built. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Faith is the foundational principle upon which we are to build, but that's the key. We don't stop with faith. We add to our faith, what? These other Christian graces. And so, for this very reason, for this very reason, that is the promises that have just been mentioned in the previous verse, giving all diligence. That word giving is an interesting, uh, translated from, from an interesting concept here. It is literally, the word that's translated giving literally is to bring in by the side of. To bring in by the side of. And so what that, what that clearly tells us is that God, God has already done his part for us in providing for us the gospel through his only begotten son and through the sacrifice that was made on Calvary and the blood that was shed there and the gospel that, that came as a result of Calvary, the covenant that we have been blessed to receive those promises that have already been mentioned here that he has already in, mentioned in verse 4. Because of God having done his part, we are now in a position to bring something in to the side of, if you will, what God has already done. In other words, what it says is that God obviously has done a tremendous work for us, but that he has not done all the work for us. And that's something that's vitally important for us to appreciate. Now, I hope there's no one in here tonight in this audience that, that doubts that, but I know that outside this building there are plenty of people, tragically, who would deny that we need to do anything in order to bring into the side of what God has already done, that God has already done it all, and that there's very little, if anything, that we need to, to do. But keep in mind that he is writing these words to those who have already become Christians and saying to them, 
Not only have you had to do your part in becoming Christians by a belief in Jesus that led you to repent, confess, and be baptized, but you are to continue to bring into the side of, if you will, what God has done for you as His children. In other words, it cannot stop on the other side of the baptistry when we come out of the waters of baptism. We are just beginning and not ending our journey in Christ. And so we're to bring in by the side of something that is vitally important to our salvation. Has God done uh, the greater work in what he has given us? Of course. Are, is it accurate to say that what we do is of lesser value than what God has done? I would say that that would be an accurate uh, statement that uh, God's grace is the ground of our salvation. What God has done is far greater than anything that I can do as a human being. But, having said that, this passage and so many others make it abundantly clear that what I am to bring into the side of, what I am to give, is absolutely essential. No matter how great the work that God has done by His grace and through His love, there is still an absolutely essential element that I am to bring in, not only in becoming a Christian by obeying the gospel, but in living the Christian life because he's writing to Christians here. You are to bring in by the side of giving all what? Diligence. Diligence. And that word diligence indicates to hasten, to hasten. And that tells me that as a child of God, when I become a child of God, I immediately... I immediately focus on growing as a child of God. And I don't have to speculate or suppose that that's the case. The same writer in his first epistle tells me that that is the case. In 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Remember what he wrote there? Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the sincere or the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, when are we to begin to desire that milk and move on to the meat? The moment we become children of God. The moment we become children of God. That's why it's so important for one who obeys the gospel to be of a truly accountable age where one can begin to serve the Lord immediately upon one's obedience to the gospel. That's why babies are not subject to the gospel. Babies are not subject to the gospel because they can't believe, but they can't serve. <laughs> They can't serve immediately. Those who obey the gospel are to immediately apply themselves to the growth in these graces that we are looking at tonight. And so, hasten to do this. Don't wait around, in other words, to start applying yourself to growing as a child of God. You do that immediately and you do it continually. Giving, bring in by the side of, diligence, hasten to do this, and then he says, add. Now that little word add there in the New King James, or supply as the American Standard uh, renders it, is a very, very significant word. I want to read to you what the late guy in Woods wrote about this word uh, in his commentary. The word supply in the American Standard but the word add here in the New King James. This is a beautiful description 
of the, uh, of the uh, origin of this word. Brother Woods wrote, originally it meant to found and support a chorus, to lead a choir, to keep in tune, and then ultimately came to mean to supply or provide. As here used, the graces which adorn the Christian's character are to be chorused into a grand symphony to the delight and pleasure of him who fashioned and made us for his own good pleasure. It will be seen that there are eight of the graces and that they thus form an octave of soul tones, the first being faith, the last love, an octave higher. When these are harmonized and played on by the divine spirit, disharmony disappears and life's discords vanish. How we should rejoice that we have been privileged to provide such an instrument in the hand of our God. I just think though that is beautifully written as he describes the etymology of this word and how it ultimately came to mean supply or provide, but originally to found or support a chorus or to lead a choir or to sing in tune. But a great symphony. That's what these eight Christian graces comprise. It's a great spiritual symphony where our lives, in effect, make beautiful music to the God of heaven who created us. And so add to what? Your faith. Remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And so to make sure that we have the foundational principle of faith in our lives, we've got to feed upon the word of God. Add to your faith virtue. What is virtue? It has been described as, uh, as moral courage or moral excellence, moral or spiritual uh, courage is the idea here. And virtue is second in the list. As though Peter were saying that moral and spiritual courage can come into one's life through faith. Do we have any biblical uh, examples of virtue, that is, moral courage, where faith manifested itself in a courageous fashion? What about Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife? Did he display any moral courage there? Of course he did. What about Moses? Hebrews 11 says he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Did that take moral courage? Yes. What about Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies who kept saying, we can do this, we can take the land, despite the negative report of the other ten? What about David and his uh, very famous uh, battle with Goliath as the armies of Israel were cowering in effect and wondering, what are we going to do next? And David stepped up by faith and demonstrated that faith by his virtue, his moral courage, and defeated the giant. Oh yes, we can, we can cite so many examples from the Old Testament and then in the New, Peter 
and Mark. They're examples of those who at times lacked moral courage. When Peter denied the Lord three times. When Mark turned back on the first missionary uh, journey. We're not told why, but uh, Paul was not happy about it. We know that. He didn't think it was virtue or moral courage that was exhibited by Mark, and certainly that was the case with Peter when he denied the Lord, but both of these men later demonstrated the very the very quality that they, at one time in their lives, lacked. And then we can look at the Restoration Movement, not the Reformation Movement. That fell short of doing what needed to be done as Luther and others wanted to reform the Catholic Church, but the Restoration Movement was a different movement altogether, wasn't it? And how thankful we ought to be for the moral courage, for the virtue of so many men and women for that matter who stood strong for the truth and realized we need to lay aside these man-made creeds and these man-made doctrines and we need to return to the pattern. And they were those, they were those who suffered ridicule and persecution as a result of their determination to return to that pattern. One of my favorite restoration characters is Jacob Creeth Jr. And Jacob Creeth Jr. stood against the missionary society. He stood against so many things that, that others in the restoration movement were not standing against, as a matter of fact, especially the, the American Christian Missionary Society. But Jacob Creeth Jr., and this is a very sad statement, really, that he, that he made, but he said concerning his critics, they have written my faults in marble and my virtues in the dust. They have written my faults in marble and my virtues in the dust. They're going to accentuate my faults and they're going to forget about my virtue. Aren't we thankful that God is not like man? God will not forget our moral courage. God will not forget our virtue, which is described as moral courage. How do we grow in virtue? By growing in faith. Remember, these are intricately, these graces intricately tied to one another. One builds upon the other. One includes the other. So it's not a question of, of faith and then virtue and leaving off faith and, adding, and going to virtue. No, in each virtue or each grace is another. And you add to them. Add to your faith virtue. Don't lose your faith. Obviously, keep building upon it. But add to it the courage that it takes to demonstrate that faith, as in the examples of those we have just cited. And what about knowledge? Add to virtue knowledge. The process of learning is a constant process. And to knowledge, add self-control. Temperance, as the King James says, but self-control, I think, is... Uh, a clearer translation here, it is designed to just simply convey that we are to be disciplined with ourselves. And how do we learn to be disciplined with ourselves? Through the knowledge that we gain from the Word of God. So add to knowledge self-control. The knowledge we gain from God's Word is going to enable us to control ourselves and to keep ourselves within biblical limits in terms of our behavior. And once we have learned that, 
then perseverance is not going to be as difficult. But perseverance, or patience as it is sometimes translated, but perseverance is really, I think, again, the clearer translation because it indicates keeping on, keeping on. In other words, standing up under trial. Self-control leads to the ability to persevere and to endure the trials of this life. But listen to it. The next grace is godliness. And how important is it that we understand that perseverance and godliness are not two separate graces, but that they go hand in hand? Perseverance can be seen in people who are unbelievers. Isn't that true? Are there not people who are not believers in God, who are not godly individuals, who have endured and continue to endure trials of this life and the afflictions of this life that come, and they endure them, and they get through them. But godliness is inseparable from the perseverance about which Peter writes. In other words, we're to persevere. We're to persevere in godliness and motivated by godliness, motivated by the desire to become more like God every day that we live. That's our ultimate standard. The last words of Matthew 5, the last uh, verse of Matthew 5, verse 48, therefore be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's the standard of godliness for which we are to strive. And add to godliness what? Brotherly kindness. The word here is Philadelphia. The idea of brotherly love. And the closeness that we have to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And to manifest that kindness, growing out of Godlikeness, being as much like God as we can. And if we are striving to be godly, doesn't brotherly kindness flow naturally from that grace? Well, of course it does. God, God created all men. But God is the architect of the church, which is comprised of brothers and sisters. Therefore, the admonition to show brotherly kindness is absolutely inseparable from loving God. And John makes that clear, especially in 1 John, that you cannot claim to love God and hate your brother or your sister in Christ. There must be that brotherly kindness. There must be that Philadelphia love. There must be that wonderful relationship that is sustained by all those who are in Christ because of the relationship that all of us sustain to the God who created us in Christ Jesus, our spiritual creation in the kingdom, in the church. But that's not the only kind of love that is to be manifested because to brotherly kindness we're to add the agape love. And that love extends beyond the borders of the brotherhood, if you will. It extends to all men everywhere, even to our enemies, as the Sermon on the Mount makes abundantly clear. That if we love those who love us, we're just like the heathen and the tax collectors, as uh, Scripture says. We're just like the, the Gentiles, those who are still out here in the world. They'll love those who love them. But our love in this last of the Christian graces, the crowning grace, if you will, of the eight. An octave higher, as Brother Woods points out, from where we begin, 
is the agape love. The love that always does that which is best for the one who is loved, even if that one is our enemy, we still wish for him or for her and act in accordance with what is best for that individual. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, who despise you, who would do you harm. Doesn't say we're to have the same brotherly kindness. We can't. They're not brothers. Doesn't say that we're to have the phileo love, the warm, tender affection that is elsewhere spoken of in Scripture. No, but we are to have that highest form of love, the agape love. And so the crowning grace here, as Peter enumerates these eight beautiful Christian graces, the crowning one is love. And it reminds us of what Paul wrote in the Colossian letter that we have studied, and that is that love, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, the girdle, if you will, the belt that ties together the Christian's spiritual garment. But then... In verses 8 and 9, Peter writes, For if these things are yours and abound, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. If these things are yours, and what? And abound, and abound. Not a little smattering of, of perseverance and a little touch of faith and just a little bit of brotherly kindness. No, if these things are yours, if they are your possessions, and you are abounding in these things that have become your possessions, oh, then, and only then, will you be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage tells us that nominal Christianity has no place in terms of God's scheme of redemption. That nominal Christianity is not going to please God. And we've said that many times because the Scripture clearly teaches that time and time again. He who is not with me is against me, and he who is not gathering with me is scattering abroad, Matthew twelve thirty. Actively gathering, abounding in love, increasing and abounding in love, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Abounding, abounding, abounding is a constant theme when it comes to our Christian life. And as we've often said, it's really for our good that we understand that we need to abound in these things and that we apply ourselves to do so because that's where the real joy and happiness of Christianity is found. That's where the truly uh, great peace that surpasses understanding is to be experienced is in wholehearted service to God, not half-hearted service to God. So if these things belong to you, Paul or Peter says, if they belong to you and you're abounding in them, you will not be barren, you will not be unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what about the one who lacks these things? Verse 9. He's short-sighted, as the new King James says, even to blindness. The idea here is of one who has difficulty seeing 
into the light, looking into the light directly. And so he squints and blinks often in order not to see less, but to see more. But when you're in that kind of situation, what are you going to see if you're having to squint and you are blinking a lot? Are you going to see the things that are far off? No, all you're going to see is what is immediately around you. And those who don't possess the Christian graces and are not abounding in them, who don't possess them and are not striving to continue to abound in them, then all they can see is the here and now and what is immediately around them in this world. And they've completely lost sight of the wonderful future that God has for those who are abounding in the Christian graces. And so, there's a myopia here, if you will, that, spiritually speaking, that has blinded them to the greatest blessings that one could ever possess, the blessings that belong to the truly committed child of God. Blindness, forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. How many people do you know? How many people can you think of tonight who once were faithful, but based upon their actions tonight, are basically demonstrating that they have forgotten all about the cleansing that they once experienced from their sins. I'm sure you can think of someone immediately, or more than one. I can. Oh, yes. I can think of gospel preachers. I can think of those who spent two years in, a, in an intensified school of preaching and the training that, that they received there. I know of one man right here in this city in that very situation who is at this point in time about as worldly in his actions and in his speech as one can be and yet at one time was preaching the gospel of Christ. I think you'd have to say he's completely in a state of forgetfulness about the cleansing from his old sins. And that is heartbreaking, heartbreaking beyond description. Well, how can we keep that from happening? Peter tells us, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. Go back to verse 5, giving diligence, all diligence, same word, same idea, hasten, hasten. Don't put this off. You keep at it. You hasten to do this. Hasten, brethren, to make your what? To make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you wanted two verses that tell you that the impossibility of apostasy is false doctrine, here are two out of the hundreds in Scripture that do that very thing. How could they not do that? If it is not possible for a child of God who's become a Christian to lose his salvation after he's become a child of God, why have I just read these two verses? Why would Peter say to brethren, 
be even more diligent to make your call. What call is that? The call they received through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. Whereunto he called you by our gospel. Brethren, be diligent to make that calling that you answered through the gospel and obeying the gospel to make that call and what? Election sure. When you answered the call of the gospel, you became a part of the elect. Reminds us of what Peter wrote in his first epistle, remember? Writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion and so forth. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Elect individually? No. Elect as a group? Yes. What group is that that's been elected by God? Those who have obeyed the gospel are among the elect. But we have to make that decision. We have to answer the call of the gospel in order to become a part of the elect, those who've been called out, those who are the elect of God. God hasn't predetermined or elected individuals to be saved or lost, as we've often talked about. But your election refers to their obedience to the gospel that put them among the elect. God elected ahead, way ahead of time that only those who will be saved are those who become the elect by doing what? Answering the call of the gospel. It's that clear. It's that simple. And so, make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. What's the opposite of that? If you don't do these things, you will stumble. And stumble means literally to stumble upon a rock and to fall. To fall. Not to stumble and be a little uncertain in your salvation, but to hit the rock and fall as a result of it. And therefore, it makes abundantly clear the possibility of our doing that. But these eight Christian graces, if we possess them and we're abounding in them, and we're truly concentrating on them every day that we live, then we can make our call and election sure by so doing. And here's the promise. For so an entrance will be supplied to you. How? Barely. You're going to barely squeeze in. If you do all these things, you can make it, but you'll just barely make it by the skin of your teeth into heaven. No. No, he says... You abound in these graces and you will receive an abundant entrance. The gates will be wide open, in other words, as it were. And you will receive an abundant entrance into the what? Everlasting kingdom. That's the heavenly abode. When the kingdom is delivered to God the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, as we noted this morning, and when it becomes that everlasting kingdom, when Jesus puts down his rule and authority and delivers it to the Father in heaven. That's the kingdom to which Peter makes reference here. And the entrance into it for those who are applying themselves to these Christian graces will be an abundant entrance. Isn't that what we all surely want? It's ours. It's ours. It's promised if we will apply ourselves to these beautiful Christian graces and abound in them. But remember, these words were written to Christians. You can't abound in these Christian graces in compliance with what Peter writes by inspiration until you're in Christ. And to be in Christ, you must believe in Christ with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess Him to be the Christ, and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you've done that, but you have forgotten that you were cleansed from your old sins, 
and your life reflects that forgetfulness, then we plead with you to remember and to come home as we stand to sing.